So now we're going to read from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 to 23. I'll be reading from the ESV. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us there get a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O oh Lord, open the eyes of these men, that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. 
So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I was going to say, please be seated, but I got here too late. (laughs) Let's pray before we look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word, that it speaks to us today, and, and it does so because... Uh, your spirit takes your word and it applies it into our hearts. It uh, comes alive in us. And we pray, Lord, that as the seed of your word is planted in us, uh, that it would bear fruit, much good fruit, that would glorify you. And so please help us now as we look at this passage this morning together for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jared has uh, really got me looking after things this weekend. He, he's gone away and he gave me the keys to his house and so I'm looking after his cats, uh, feeding them and now I'll come to church and I'm hopefully, Lord willing, going to feed you too. Um, I'm glad I don't have to change any litter boxes here though, so, or at least as far as I know. So we're going to be looking at a passage together that uh, Rob read to us a moment ago from 2 Kings chapter 6. If you've got a Bible or you've got a device that can access the Bible, please make sure it's open there because it's a great story and we're not going to go through it word for word. Uh, I want you to see the story in in the bigger picture. And um, and it's a a wonderful part of the story of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. Now, from a young age, we all instinctively know that our world is not safe. When you're a little kid, it starts with the the monsters under the bed. When the lights go out, you you don't want the lights to go out. The darkness is scary. But we never really grow out of that fear, do we? We lock our doors at night. Well, most of us do. We ensure our homes. We ensure our our, uh, incomes. uh, We ensure our lives because we know that life is not safe that unseen dangers lurk in the shadows that wake us up at night. But there is a way to be safe in this world. Even as we live in the most frightening of times, there is a way to be safe. And we see the way in these two strange stories from 2 Kings chapter 6 that we read a moment ago. Two stories that help us to to know how to deal with with the fear of difficulty and danger in our lives. I want to look at both stories. They link together, but I want to look at them one at a time. Firstly, dealing with difficulties in that first seven verses of chapter 6. Now, I don't know about you, but just reading that story of a floating axe head, it's one of those stories I'm sure not a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about Partly because it's a weird story, and partly because we don't know what to do with it. I mean, if if you had to write a a daily devotional on this, the thought for the day, and there you, it was your responsibility to write something on chapter 6, 1 to 7, what would you say? How would you encourage Christians today with a floating axe head? Well, I can tell you what people have said, because I went looking Uh, Some have taken it to be a moral story, uh, kind of a a, a biblical Aesop's fable. You know, the moral of the story is, 
And, and what is the moral of the story? Well, it's obviously a warning about keeping your tools in good shape. That's one possibility. Somebody else actually wrote that, that this is a story that warns you of the danger of lending out your tools to other people. Now, obviously, you know that that can't be what the story's about. Well, what we could do is we could say it's the Old Testament, and, and the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. And that's right. That's true. The Old Testament does point to Jesus. And, but then the next jump is, well, this story in some way must be an allegory. It must be a, a story about Jesus. And we have to take all the elements of the story and click it into a gospel picture. So let's see. Well, the axe head must be the man's soul. The river is the waters of judgment that his soul has fallen into and he can't get out of. The solution is that the man of God will throw a stick or a piece of wood onto the water. And everybody knows, when you think about wood in the Bible, what are we thinking about? The cross of Christ, of course. I saw you take the jump. And, and so this must all be about salvation. This must be, you know, the, the cross of Christ that brings a person out of the waters of judgment and back uh, into the arms of God. And if I did a little bit of more mental gymnastics, I could probably even squeeze into that full immersion baptism. Now, you may think I've completely made that up, but actually that's exactly what I read in a commentary on the Old Testament, not the, the full immersion baptism, but I just threw that in as a bonus for you Baptists out there. But, um, but that's basically the kinds of things that people, when they come to a story like this, when they try to understand a story like this, they try to go, well, how do I piece this together? And it's a shame, really, because what happens is we get so confused about the Old Testament, we ignore the Old Testament, or we just skip to the good parts, or we just go to the New Testament, because that makes a bit more sense than these weird stories from long ago. And it's a great shame, because if we treated the story not as an allegory, not as a, a fable, not as a, a, um, a, a moral story, but if we treated it as a real historical event, something that actually happened, something that is true, and we start to figure out how that story fits into the bigger story. As we start to ask ourselves, not what's in this story for me, but rather what is the story telling me about God? If we start there, we'll end up in a much healthier place. And so let me show you how that works out for this story. So a man loses a borrowed axe head in a river and and our immediate response to that is, well, big deal, go back, go down to Bunnings, buy a new one, and it'll all be sorted. But what we don't understand about that time is that tools, and particularly things like axe heads, were enormously expensive. They were rare items. And, and you couldn't just go down to the hardware store. There were no hardware stores. Uh, the, maybe if we were to compare it to, to something today, it would be like borrowing a friend of yours car, not just a, an old banged up car, but a really nice car, uh, one of the new, you know, 2022 kind of models, and you're driving it around and you accidentally somehow by some sheer twist of fate end up driving it into the river. You manage to get an escape 
but there goes your friend's uh, uh, car sinking down to the bottom of Swan River, and and you're you're beside yourself because you know he hadn't taken insurance out on it, and you're going to owe him big time. That's the kind of sense of horror that this this uh, this son of the prophet is feeling when when the axid flies into the river and sinks to the bottom. He says, alas, my master, it was borrowed. It means I'm going to spend the rest of my life having to pay this thing back. That's how precious it is. So he cries out to to Elisha, the man of God, who by God's power brings it back. So what is this telling me about God? Well, first of all, it tells me that our God is a good God. He's a God who cares for his people. He's a God who can bring good out of an evil situation. He is a God who rules over nature. He is not bound by its laws. He is a God whose power accompanies his word. And I think specifically in this story, when we look at it in the bigger context of where it's been situated, if you were to read... The, the chapter before, and you were to read the story after, which we're going to look at in a moment, you'll realize that this is a tiny little parochial story squashed in between two massive international events that God is involved in. So what does that tell me about God? Well, it tells me that, that the God that we worship, the God of the Bible, is not just the God is involved and interested in the big events, the international events of the world. He is a God who's concerned and involved with little people and little things going on. That that even the small people like you and me, sorry to say, we in the grand scheme of of history will really be only be remembered by our closest family, most of us. And, and we'll probably only register as a little insignificant blip on the, uh, the Richter scale of history. And yet, as small as we are, God is involved and interested in our lives. Here is a God who knows even the numbers of the hairs on our head. And for, for some of us, that's, that's, a, that's a number that he's changing every day because it's going down. But, but here it is that God knows everything, the very intimate details about this littlest person. And when we cry out to him, he hears us. He may respond in a way that we, we would be surprised by or, or, or unsure of, but he does hear us. He is the God of little people as much as the great world events. Now, it's right for us to ask, well, because this is the Old Testament, what does this tell me about Jesus? How does this point me to Jesus? Well, of course, when we bring Jesus into the picture, we realize that he is the whole reason we can pray to this God in the first place. The God of the universe, the God who created all things. How do I even approach such a holy, pure, glorious God? Well, it's through Jesus, because Jesus is our Savior. Because he is the one who walks on the waters, who calms our troubled fears, who redeems us through his death on the cross for our sins, which we're going to remember as we share the Lord's Supper in a moment. Here is the God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sets everything right that is wrong in this world. 
So how do I respond then to a God like this? Well, if I think God is too big and my problems are too small for his attention, then all the difficulties of my life will begin to pile up one upon the next. And I'll end up carrying all those burdens myself because I think God's not interested in me. God's not, not interested in, the, in the, the trivial things of my life that I'm struggling with. Uh, if we think God is too big and we are too small, we will never come to him in, in, with all our prayers. We'll just be praying, you know, those kind of prayers that we like to pray at prayer meetings, the ones where we pray about big things, but we never really bring him what's on our hearts. Here is a story that reminds me that God cares for even the smallest, tiniest detail in my life. That he hears, that he can answer those prayers, and he will answer those prayers according to his will. Now that might not necessarily mean that if I, if I crash the car into the Swan River, that when I pray, he will just magically float it out again. He can do it, he has the power to do it, but he may be doing something else in my life in that prayer, as I cry out to him, that will be better for me than if I was to receive that car back again in, in uh, perfect condition. Now, I've labored that point, and I really wanted to do that because the next story in 2 Kings helps things to become a lot clearer. Because what it's really doing is it's following on the same theme. The Bible commentator, uh, Dale Ralph Davies, he puts it like this. He says, no one is as safe as the people of the Lord, not just in trivial matters or small matters of life, but as this next section goes on to show us, even when we live in the most frightening of times. So let's move on then to the second story as we move from dealing with difficulty to dealing with danger. And, and we pick up the story in verse 8. Uh, once again, uh, if you've been uh, reading through the book of, well, 1 and 2 Kings, but particularly in 2 Kings, Syria has become public enemy number one to Israel, the people of God. They're constantly dogging at their heels. And, and, and the way that the stories have been knitted together, you, you see sort of surges of, of uh, Syrian attacks and, uh, and sieges, and then there's peace. And then uh, in the last chapter, there was Naaman, a, a Syrian commander who God miraculously rescues and saves. And now we come to this story where Syria again is warring against Israel. And the king of Syria is setting up traps. That's essentially what, what, what it means when he says he'll pl he places a camp. He's trying to set up a trap for the king of Israel so that when he comes past, he can attack him. But what you also discover is that that every time the king of Assyria goes to his war room and he plans where he's going to place himself and he goes and moves all his army there, the king of Israel doesn't go past there like he's been doing the last previous ten times. He suddenly takes another route and he thinks, well, hang on, what's going on here? And he does it again and again. Every time he plans his trap, the king of Assyria goes another way. And he begins to think, my war room is bugged. Uh, my account's been hacked. All my information's on the dark web. People know all my secret plans. How is it possible there must be a traitor amongst us? At which point, his servants tell him 
what they know that the king is completely ignorant of. Uh, look, look at it there um, in verse 12. One of his servants said, uh, when he says, who will show me who, is, who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, which one of you is a spy working for the enemy? And his servants say, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I mean, it doesn't get more intimate than that for, for, the, for the king of Syria. It's not just in the war room. No, it's in, even in your bedroom. He can penetrate that far into what's going on in your life. He can hear every single word you say. That's quite, a, quite something, isn't it? I mean, we, we get nervous and jumpy about the government watching us, about, uh, you know, our mobile phone is tracking us. Uh, there are the, the accounts uh, that we have at various things are all kind of watching over us. Here is the king of Syria who realizes every word he says, even in the quietness of his bedroom. Elisha hears. So the so, and there's something comical about the story, that as the king of Syria is trying to plan to attack the king of Israel, it's impossible for him to do it, because every plan he puts into, into motion is already known, which makes the next thing that the king of Israel do a little bit bizarre. He has a cunning plan to take out Elisha, which is really a stupid plan, because how does he ever expect to catch Elisha if he already knows that Elisha knows that he knows? So, anyway, he goes ahead with it. He finds out that Elisha is in the city of Dothan. Verse 14, he sends an entire army to take out this one little prophet. They arrive under the cover of darkness. They surround the city. The next morning, Elisha's servant uh, gets up, bleary-eyed. He kind of pulls open the blind, the, the glint of sun on the, on the shields of the army kind of, kind of blinds his eyes for a moment while he makes his coffee, he takes his first sip, his brain kicks into gear as he looks out onto the field, and then you can imagine the scene as his coffee, drop, coffee cup drops from his hand in slow motion and hits the ground and shatters as he runs to Elisha, his master, and says, alas, master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, verse 15, don't be, verse 16, sorry, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Wait, what? You know, uh, Elisha's servant goes, well, I can count to two at least, and that's the two of us. I can't even count that bunch. It's one, two, three, many lots. There are a whole lot out there and there's two of us. What are you talking about, Elisha? And so Elisha prays. One of three prayers he prays in this story. And all three prayers have to do with seeing or not seeing. And suddenly, Elisha's servant's eyes are opened to something he never had seen before. Something that Elisha is pointing at. That an even bigger army of Horses and chariots of fire are surrounding the army that are trying to surround them. It's the Lord's army that we're talking about here. When we talk about chariots of fire, we're talking about a holy army, a pure army of the Lord. 
and they are a spiritual army. They are hidden from sight, but they are there. And so Elisha is right to say there's no need to be afraid. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And you know, it's the same of Jesus. Jesus said something very similar, even in the very darkest time of his life. Matthew 26, his enemies had surrounded him in the garden of Gethsemane. They were about to take him away to be killed. And what did he say to Peter, who was wildly swinging his sword around, trying to fight off the hordes? Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus says to him, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so. So Jesus certainly isn't lacking in resources. He's got 72,000 angels on call, champing at the bit, just, just, just saying, Lord, just give us the word and we will wipe them out. And the Lord holds them back because it's the Lord's will that we would die on a cross for our sins, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit would uh, work this plan of perfection that in, in the cross of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ would die, not for anything that he has done, but for all our sins, for what we have done, that it would be the only way for us to be saved. And praise God that he held back the armies. So what does that mean for us today? Should we be praying that God would show us angels should we be praying that God will open our eyes to, to the spiritual forces around us? Should we be praying for angelic protection when we're going through difficult times or when we are fearful? Is this telling us, the story telling us, that, that, that we should get involved in deliverance ministries, as some churches do get involved in, or pray for territorial angels over the city of Perth or, or this area of High Wycombe? Well, the short answer is no. We shouldn't be doing that. Why? Well, Simon Van Brisham, uh, one of our, the pastors in our, in our denomination, has written a book called Fear Not. Great little book to get your hands on, and a very cheap little book to get your hands on, by the way. Um, and so here is a book that, that explains the whole uh, story of, of angels and demons and the spiritual forces and how we as Christians are to interact with them. It's a great short little book, uh, and, it's, and it's written for us, not for some sort of theologians up in the universities. And it's a great book to get your hands on, if you can. What he says is this. Paul and the other apostles never appeal to angelic guardians to work among believers or encourage us to pray for angelic protection. You notice that? that it, when you read through the New Testament, when you read the letters in the New Testament where Paul is speaking to Christians, he never tells Christians to pray for angelic protection or to pray uh, for, for the angels. It never appears. Even in the prayers that he tells them, he's praying for them. You see, if, if angels are protecting God's people all the time, which... Matthew 18.10 hints at, seems possible that that is happening, it's not something that we need to be overly concerned about. 
The same can be said for angels over areas or countries or cities. We, we learn about that in Daniel chapter 10. You could go and look at that later if you want. Daniel is told of a celestial battle, a, a spiritual battle that's going on that he was completely unaware of until he is told about it. But in that chapter, he's not told to pray for the angels. He's not told to figure out which angel belongs to which area. He's not told to act in any way that would influence that spiritual battle. He as if he could. If anything, when you read about these encounters with angels and the spiritual forces, as you go through the Bible, when you read th about them, you'll notice that, that most of the time the Bible is warning us to stay out of it, to not be distracted by it, to not be distracted by things that could lead us away from Jesus. So in Colossians chapter 3, some people were so fascinated by the angels, they'd begun to work out a hierarchical structure, and they were trying to figure out who to worship. And if I worship this angel, then that angel will connect to this one, and, and up the chain will go. They were beginning to worship angels because they were so obsessed by the angels. And that is quite clearly idolatry. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is superior to the angels in every way. Angels can't save us. Angels didn't die on the cross for our sins. Jesus died for us. Jesus saves us. Don't be distracted by the spiritual forces, thinking that somehow by our prayers we can influence or control the spiritual realm. Even the most famous passage on spiritual warfare says that. Ephesians chapter 6, the, the famous uh, spiritual warfare chapter. When you read that chapter, you'll notice that we're never told to fight, we're told to stand firm. That's the, the thing that, that Paul says again and again and again. As the devil seeks to attack and destroy, yes, we are in a, in an, in a, in a war, but what are we to do? We are to stand firm in the armor of God, the armor that God has given us. What is that armor? Well, well, the rest of Ephesians leading up to that, Paul has been explaining it. It is the gospel. The gospel is the armor of God. And the only weapon there is the sword of the spirit, which is the word, the Bible. And he goes on to say we must pray. The, the, the word and prayer is, is our, is our uh, weapons for this battle. But the prayer you'll notice when you, when you look at how, what Paul asks for prayer from in that chapter is not that the devil would be defeated, but rather that the gospel would go out, that he would be a, a faithful gospel witness and he will continue to proclaim the gospel and that the gospel will continue to, to move out into dark territories. You see, we have to be very careful Every time the Bible pulls back the curtain to show us the spiritual realm, which is real, every time the Bible calls it, pulls it back, it shows it to us for one main reason. The same reason Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened. That he might understand and that we might understand that despite outward appearances... God is fully in control on a level that, that we are most of the time ignorant of 
and, and, and just completely oblivious to. That there's a whole spiritual realm out there that we don't see, but God has control over. And that should give us peace. Rather than to start worrying about which angel is where and which demon is where and, and are we safe, are we not safe? No, we, we need to know that God can keep us safe and trust that he will keep us safe despite what we cannot see and control. We might not be safe from all physical harm all the time, but we can know and trust that God will keep us safe from all spiritual harm because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which explains what goes on in the story as we come back to 2 Kings 6. That, that, did you notice that the army of the Lord that, that Elisha's servant has now just seen and, and realized is there? You notice that they don't actually do anything. They appear. But then what does Elisha do? Well, he could have clicked his fingers and, we, and this army would just descend on the Syrian army and wipe them out and they're gone. But instead... As Bruce Waltke puts it, Elisha prays that the servant's eyes be open to heavenly realities. Just as he prays that, so he prays his enemy's eyes would be blinded to earth's realities. And so he prays and the Syrians are struck with blindness or, or probably more confusion because they can still see but they don't quite understand what's going on. And, and again, there's a, there's a comic turn of events in this story. The way that it is written is meant to be, to be seen as something almost humorous about the way that Elisha takes them by the hand as he comes to them and says to them, this is not the way. These are not the droids you are looking for. Follow me and I'll take you to the man you seek. And they go, okay. And they, they follow him. And of course, we know as the story unfolds, he takes them straight into the capital city so that when their eyes are opened again, they're surrounded by the enemies of uh, uh, their enemies, the king of Israel. And, and that, where they started as the ones who were doing the surrounding, now they are the surrounded ones. They are at the mercy of the king of Israel, who, as you may notice, wants to kill them all. He, he says to Elisha, when he sees this army in, in his gates, verse 21, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? You can he almost hear the bloodlust. He just can't wait to get his hands on these guys and wipe them out. And yet, instead of a bloodbath, verse 22 and 23, Elisha calls for a banquet. And they eat together. And then Elisha sends them back to their king. No doubt a little bit sheepish about everything that's happened. But more than that, they were treated with unexpected grace. You notice that? It's a strange story. Not only does, does God protect Elisha and Israel by disabling the Syrians, he also protects the Syrians at the same time from res by restraining Israel's king from killing them. Even unwashed Gentiles can have the Lord as their shield and strength if they only have the eyes to see him for who he really is. 
incredible. It's an unexpected picture of God's grace. The grace that he extends even to his enemies, that they might turn to him and be saved. And it's an, an invitation to you and to, to all of us today that if we don't know where we stand with the Lord, well, here is the God who, who is calling you to come to know him, to trust in him, to receive a grace that you don't deserve because that's what grace is. It's a gift to the undeserved. For no one is as safe as the people of the Lord, even when we live in the most frightening of times, from the seemingly small and trivial things of our daily lives, all the way up to the powers and the principalities, even to those invisible spiritual forces that are beyond our normal senses, God's in control of it all, and we are as safe in his hands. We are in the safest place in the universe. And he won't let us go. As the story from Elisha shows us, the plans and the purposes of God that are not often seen by the naked eye or even by rationally deducing it from the world we live in, the plans and the purposes of God need to be revealed to us. They need to be shown to us. The spiritual reality needs to be revealed. And the ultimate revelation is Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, whose plans and purposes were once a mystery to us, not just to us, but even to the spiritual forces, the powers and the principalities. As we are told in Ephesians uh, chapter 3 and verse 9, and also in Colossians 2, through his death on the cross for our sins, Christ disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He put them to shame, triumphing over them. And that's the spiritual reality we need our eyes open to, especially as we live in a world of difficulty and danger where no one is as safe as the people of the Lord, not just in the trivial matters of life, but also even in the most frightening of times. Remember that Christ is on the throne, that there is nothing and no one that can separate us from him. That there is, that he is our safety. Ultimately, from the judgment of God to come on the sin of those who refuse to turn to him. As Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in the king. The king who's coming to judge. So pray. Pray for big things. Pray for small things. Pray and, and give God all your burdens. Because he will answer those prayers according to his will. Pray in the knowledge that you are safe in his hands. Pray that the Lord would open your eyes to the spiritual realities we are living in. Pray that he might even confuse our enemies with grace. As we love and care for a people who may hate us. Pray for his kingdom to come. For his will to be done. Because as the old hymn reminds us, our God is a mighty fortress. He will help us even as our ancient foe, the devil, seeks to destroy us. Pray that we would look to Christ who has won the battle and therefore we do not need to fear. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. 
His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word that speaks into the situation, even as we face today, the kind of world we live in where everything seems unsafe, where everything, uh, as we, we try to figure out from our own um, uh, logic, uh, where the world is going, and, and it can cause us to fear. But Lord, thank you that you reveal to us in your word the spiritual realities, that Christ is on the throne. Even despite what our eyes might see, we pray that you would open our eyes to that deeper reality. And that in that, as we trust in this Jesus and live for this Jesus, that you may help us, we pray, to share and to to give grace even to those who hate us, even to those who are our enemies. We would, we would know your love and share your love with them. Please work in our lives, Lord, that we, I as we fear, as we will in this world, that we would bring all our prayers and all our requests to you, knowing that you are able to save us and that we are looking forward to that great day when you will return and make, make things new. Please strengthen us, Lord, to stand for you in this world, in Jesus' name.